I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I realise it's, it's, it's been almost 20 years since I've seen you. I think the, the, <laughs> I've got this parting image of you sort of disappearing after university and I think we'd had a beer or something. Uh-huh. And uh, I was I was voted most likely to end up in prison in at my at my law school valedictory dinner. <laughs> well, they were right. They were right, but not but not for the right reasons. I was in I was involuntarily, Mike. <laughs> well, this, I'm innocent. This is the extraordinary thing, and, the, and so the interim period that I've left you, you sort of transformed yourself into this mysterious character that belongs on the pages of a. Uh, you know, Ian Fleming. No, I, I, it, it almost it always feels like we should be having this conversation in Havana, you know, over a mojito rather than sitting in leafy cremor. <laughs> Funny you should mention Havana because I did actually get arrested and interrogated there when I went through with I had long hair like you do. And I'd, and I, uh, was that the basis of your arrest? No, well, that was probably the basis of the suspicion. I was traveling on my own with long hair and I came into Cuba. This is 2003 and just got detained. I think they were, I'd, come, I'd flown in from Colombia, and I guess they were just looking for drugs, and I stupidly <laughs> was showing off my Spanish, and I didn't answer them as a dumb tourist, and they said, oh, how come you speak Spanish with a Colombian accent? And I was like, you know, search my bag if you want to have any drugs, and of course I didn't, but what I did have was a magazine, and ma- magazines from the free press are illegal, and this one in particular, because it had a, f- a picture of Fidel Castro on the front page and a feature article about Fidel Castro, and it was, con- and I was, uh, detained for uh, importation of subversive literature, and I'm not kidding. We got fo- like they followed me for three days. I just had nothing to do, but it was still an eye opener as to you know the amount of freedom that we we are used to. And just it just blew my mind that you, that a magazine could be illegal, and when the internet still still controlled in lots of countries, and we take these freedoms for granted. So you may have guessed by now, I am having a, a cup of coffee with the world's most dangerous and interesting man, the true face of Dos Equis. Young, Rusty Young. <laughs> Rusty Young, uh, my old colleague from uh, law school many years, many moons ago, but much more pertinently, the best-selling author of Marching Powder. Uh, he's got an amazing upcoming book called uh, Colombiana. Colombiana, yeah. Yep. And he uh, also starred in this fantastic documentary that I watched on the weekend called Wildlands. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a big year for me. Last year, releasing Colombiano and Wildlands in the same year, it sort of seems like, oh, you finally have an overnight success. But it had been fourteen years since the first book, so <laughs> it was a it was a long decade to get out my second my all important second album. Maybe I should have been a rock star. I, don't know. Well, I, I, th- I think you are in South America. So you know, obviously, many people have read Marching Powder, but for those of you that aren't so familiar, we should maybe just recap a little bit how you ended up taking this divergent path from law school to you know, one of the most notorious jails in Bolivia. Mm. Well, I'd just finished uh, law school with you um, and I did commerce and I was working in merchant banking at the time. And I just wanted one final holiday. I went overseas with my then girlfriend, Simone Camilleri, who I think you know. Um, and we were just backpacking and we came across this prison on our last day in Bolivia and it was listed in all the guidebooks as the world's most bizarre tourist attraction. So, <laughs> of course, we being um, overconfident, naive, 24-year-old law students decided that we would go in there and we'd actually studied a, a unit in a law school called penology, which is the study of prisons, actually. Right. Um, so as part of our research, of course, post-law 
uh, degree, we went into this prison, ended up staying two nights in the prison and being offered cocaine and alcohol. And it was just a, you know, one of the craziest experiences of my life. And I was like, this is better than merchant banking and law. I'm going to write a book. So I stayed, I ended up going back and staying in there for <coughs> four months, getting arrested, bribing judges, hanging out with all these crims, including the one of the well, the biggest ever known uh, captured cocaine trafficker in Bolivia who had 4.2 tonnes of cocaine in his own plane. 4.2 tonnes? Yeah, he was our next door neighbour. This is, this, is, this is Thomas, right? Uh, no, Thomas was Thomas was a black English drug trafficker. He was right. the guy who he actually became a tour guide inside the prison. He was the guy who was you know, famous through the Lonely Planet guidebook. And he was the guy I became friends with, ended up writing about you know, from his first person perspective. But... Uh, his next door neighbor in the four and a half star section of uh, the prison that there are eight different sections and they all have star ratings like hotels so he was in the four and a half star section with a nice pine tree and they all had television and air conditioning and um and actually this guy had his own ensuite bathroom and internet and fax machine in his cell it was pretty incredible they all had mobile phones this is back in the day this is 90 you know 1999 um and yeah, he had he had been busted with 4.2 tons of cocaine. I mean, that's worth a street value, 420 million. So you can imagine the kind of power this guy wields. But he's just like a really kind of casual guy. Spoke really good English actually, and just didn't seem at all like a violent crim. So it was really it was a bit of an eye opener, you know, because you sort of, I guess, the media and movies feed you <clears throat> an image of cocaine traffickers as all being Scarface. ultra violent and you know psychotic and that's the only way they get to the top is through violence but a lot of them are actually um which is good quite, at logistics they're quite yeah the main thing with cocaine trafficking is surprisingly is uh, the main difficulty is transport yeah right. so that's the key thing and what we're seeing now in mexico is the mexicans i mean mexico doesn't actually produce cocaine bolivia peru and colombia are the primary uh, cocaine producing nations but the mexicans control the trade now how and why? Well, what they, the Colombians used to, um, the Colombians used to, at first they paid them, the Mexicans, to ship it through because they had already had the, the roots for marijuana. And then they, the Colombians thought, well, rather than paying them cash up front for moving our cocaine, we'll just give them it of the end product, which meant that the Mexican cartels, specifically the Guadalajara cartel, ended up learning how to distribute the product at the end to the end users in the united states and then right. once they grew their own market they became more they were pretty motivated and they became more and more successful so, so they so, began so charging they, they became the amazon of drug shipping. yeah they became i mean that they, they had they owned they call them plazas so a plaza is like a just means plaza but it, it's effectively a you know a, a route a drug route or a or a channel a drug channel and uh, so the, the Colombians couldn't couldn't transport it th- with them, but then the Mexicans learned how to sell it to the end user. And so they began to just say, well, this is what we're gonna pay you for your wholesale ton of cocaine. Whereas previously it was demand driven and the Colombians could choose their price. Uh, how sophisticated are these cartels in terms of managing logistics? I mean, you sort of hear these stories of submarines and speedboats and tunnels, mm. but, but do they almost take a kind of a data driven approach to I think it's a lot more of a, they've got so much extra cash they develop, they spend a lot of money on R&D and experimentation. I mean, they're really good at diversity. Is there cartel technology? Absolutely. I mean, look, I've got photos of myself. One of my chapters was about the very first drug submarine, which was a Russian 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 design submarine from the Cold War. And they actually purchased the blueprints illegally on the black market in Russia. And then they had to get a Russian to Spanish translator and then they had to get engineers in to build this <laughs> submarine. And the way they got busted was they had a huge rotor and it was leaving Bogota. Now Bogota is the capital of uh, Colombia. Uh, it is 2,600 meters above sea level and 18 hours by road to the nearest uh, to the nearest ocean. So what, 
on Earth was this huge submarine doing being built, and and Colombian Navy doesn't have any submarines, so that's how they got busted. That's transporting this huge submarine through um, through checkpoints. So, um, but in answer to your question, yeah, hugely sophisticated. They've got lots of money. They and and the scary thing is how, I mean, particularly we're seeing this with Mexico, is they invest in military technology. So. Right sort of counter surveillance and they can hire you know f- former members of special forces from you know any country just to kind of get some military training so you know previously they, they might have the ak-47s but they didn't really know how to shoot but now they invest in shooting classes and then they invest in explosives and they invest in um you know anti-torture techniques and then in they start that they'll have people who are in business modeling and working out what's the best way to launder their money that's another massive part is no, this is this is a, a pernicious industry that affects all levels of society. And it's a global industry. It truly what, is a global what, industry. What is the economic design of these cartels? I mean, do they tend to be uh, quite hierarchical, or, or yeah, are they sort cha- of run like little fiefdoms? Yeah, it's changed significantly. And um, you know, basically every single new cartel, when one cartel is brought down, the new, the next one um, learns from you know the previous one's demise. It's almost like a franchise. Yeah. So what they had initially was like a, a very um, hierarchical one. Like for example, the Medellin cartel. People think of it as being like you know like a strict um, linear hierarchy, but this, in, is, this was Escobar. Escobar. So they had Escobar, but really there was sort of four, four or five chieftains. Escobar was probably the most violent, and and so he sort of became the enforcer. But there were some brains behind it um, in the in the Ochoa clan, uh, and their father, the Ochoa brothers' father, was never never brought to justice. But you no, know, he's thought to be basically the brains behind it. Escobar took all the accolades because he was a a bit of an egotist. Um, but the really smart cartels we don't know about because they stay hidden. That's one of the things that, that the, the cartels learned from when the U.S. went after Pablo Escobar and the managing cartel was don't be ostentatious with your wealth. Keep a low profile. And if Escobar hadn't gone for political office and wanted the accolades and the admiration of the public and, and, the, zoo. and the zoo and hadn't sort of been in this sort of you know, ostentatious mode, then he may, have, he may have survived as being one of the richest people on planet Earth. But that's the question that I asked in, that, in this documentary. I asked of George Young, you know, who's the, uh, credited with introducing America, or at least the West Coast of America. Famously played by Johnny Depp. In Johnny the Depp in the movie Below, below with, with Penelope Cruz. I asked him lots, lots of questions about Penelope Cruz, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, said, I said, so did you get to sleep with Penelope Cruz? He goes, no, but Johnny Depp did. <laughs> <laughs> He's very funny. Um, so one of the things that they learned was to yeah to to keep um, to keep to keep quiet because um, you know Escobar Escobar you know basically was a big show off and he couldn't he wanted to be popular and he, he sort of bribed his way into into parliament and then well, one of the things that that amazed me about your documentary was just the complicated ecosystem in which all parties are kind of co-opted even the authorities mm. and it's not just the governments it's the actual people fighting the war on drugs are themselves at time enabling and supporting elements of this whole supply chain? Well, I mean, there's a lot to learn in terms of counterterrorism. In many cases, the USAID, I mean, I, did, I worked in counterterrorism for, as a contractor to the State Department um, for uh, four years in Colombia. And there's a, there's a lot of parallels between the way that these cartels work and terrorist organizations. And, and we've seen this with ISIS. It's not just a matter of defeating them militarily, but they actually after a while they start to grow roots into the local and legitimate economy and right. also they, they embed in the fabric of society. So like they, the way ISIS did with, with yeah. energy, with oil, oil trading. Yeah, you know, they start getting into, I mean, the Colombian FARC and Colombian paramilitaries were involved in 
uh, gold mining and petrol and <laughs> all sorts of things like that. So, and also they just make themselves indispensable as supposedly secure, local security. And so they make everyone else's business their business. So they sort of basically take social controls, not just military controls. So they know everyone in their protectorate. Right. And they they're, know all the business they're, and they they're can almost tax like, them. They're like company towns. They're basically, they're basically um, almost like a replacement government in some cases. Um, yeah. And I think the, the, the best terminology I've heard for that is state capture. People talk a lot about the state collapse, but these cartels and sometimes terrorist organisations actually manage to infiltrate all levels of government and judiciary and police to the point where they've actually captured the state. And once that, they've got to that point, it's almost, it's, it's almost impossible to reverse it. I mean, certainly if it take crush, generations. if you crush the cartel, you just, you treat a state failure. Yeah, well, you strangle the economy and you strangle the political system as well. I mean, right. in the case of Colombia, when, uh, when the paramilitaries were exposed for who they were, 35% of Congress was, was arrested for terrorism, on terrorism charges. So... Um, you know, and these were otherwise law-abiding abiding citizens, but because the war had been going along and drug trafficking had been going on for so many decades, it just permeates every level of society. You know, sort of a micro version of that was San Pedro prison itself that you spent time in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one, one of the things that intrigued me about your description was that this was an entire economy in itself. Yeah, it's like a micro-economy. <laughs> I, I mean, people weren't, you, you bought property in there and you paid for services and families were living in there. Could, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So basically, uh, Bolivia is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere after Haiti. Um, and obviously, prisons and prisoners in any country are, are never top of the list in terms of government budgets. But in a country, Bolivia is a very corrupt country, unfortunately. Uh, great, wonderful people, wonderful place to visit, um, and not violent, but unfortunately the government has always been corrupt there. So the government budget for prisons is virtually non-existent, and, prob- and the, the budget that, that, that is there is stolen, and the police are underpaid. So basically, in order for inmates to survive, they don't give them much food, they give them one bowl of watery soup, they don't give them uniforms, and they don't give them, um, they have to pay for their own electricity and their own water. So basically, because the government gives them nothing that as a sort of quid pro quo, they allow them to run small businesses. So they basically right. have to, you have to have an income in there, and you have to make up your own. You have to be innovative and resourceful. So it's a, it's a, it's a fully functioning microeconomy. It is. It's 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 like a. You can't uh, leave though, right? Or no, that- that's the only rule. You can't leave unless you. Oh, you can leave if you pay money. If you pay like a hundred dollars to the policeman, you can go on night leave on uh, nightclub leave and go to a nightclub and pick up a girl <laughs> and bring her back to yourself. Right. Um, but I mean, so most inmates reverse conjugal visit. <laughs> <laughs> well, most most of the inmates don't need to do that because um, women and children also live inside there. So basically, because the, to not split the families apart, the often the wives, the girlfriends, and the kids come and live in the prisons, even though they've committed no crime whatsoever. But back to the economy. So there's people in there who are shining shoes. There are people in there who are real estate agents. There are people in there selling food. So we've got restaurants, laundry services. Um, there's you know mobile phone services. All sorts of business. Now, Thomas, the guy I wrote about in Marching Powder, um, he couldn't speak the language. And so his, his job was to, he became the tour guide and he started inviting Western tourists in, charging them $5. He'd give 50% to the guards. So the guards, again, are, the guards like rep, the representative of the, I think of them as almost like the tax collector. And anything goes, like anything which makes business is, gonna, is, is allowed. Anything which makes money is, is, is allowed. So biggest uh, industries in there were tourism and cocaine. It, it, it's funny when these places like this, you get sort of a glimpse of the the terrifying privatized dystopia of the future. Mm. Well, the art. <laughs> it reminds me almost of the, of the walled city in Kowloon, you know, which was sort of the, the base of a lot of these cyberpunk 
Things in Hong Kong. I mean, it really was. I mean, he's, you know, he is, I found it really ironical because he is these people who, um, who'd been captured. I'd say 80% of the prisoners in there at the time I visited were in there for drug uh, trafficking offences. And the Bolivian drug laws were actually designed, written, drafted by the US. And it's called uh, Law 1008. So ironically, here these people that you know had been captured for drug trafficking, but they continued to traffic and to sort of use, pull their knowledge on trafficking. Right. And so this is like drug school. For yeah, it's like drug school, university of drug, university of cocaine, basically. And so they <laughs> they're actually refining cocaine in there, selling it. So reputedly, the the purest and cheapest cocaine in in South America. And there's this whole sort of capitalistic economy going on in there. There was no Pepsi in there. There's Coca-Cola signs on the walls. There are Coca-Cola umbrellas, Coca-Cola chairs, Coca-Cola refrigerators. Right, so Coca-Cola had the exclusive franchise. They had an exclusivity contract, you know, with what you'd term a, a captive audience, <laughs> like quite literally a captive <laughs> audience. And uh, I, I think when I went in there and interviewed them afterwards, they'd lost their exclusivity contract with uh, with Coca-Cola. And we did a piece on ABC's foreign correspondent. One of the interviewees said, oh, we're now negotiating with Pepsi. <laughs> so you just got this crazy system. Huh? It's funny because this sort of is a is a microcosm for the for the bigger issue of, of drugs and the ecosystems and the cartels. Because you know, as you say, it's not just a moral issue that people should or shouldn't take drugs. It's it's all economics and politics. It's completely uh, driven by money, supply and demand. And look, irrespective of your moral position, I, I personally feel that you know, cocaine, the war on drugs, to my mind, particularly on cocaine causes far more deaths, far more corruption, far more harm uh, than the drug itself. The number of, uh, uh, not to say that cocaine isn't a dangerous drug, it is extremely dangerous, it's extremely addictive. We need to address it as a society and with through government policies, yes. But what's the best optimal res- um, policy to put in place? Uh, I think we should stop looking at it as a moral and criminal offence. Uh, I think more than half of the inmates in US federal prisons um, are in for drug uh, drug related offences. So, when you've got a million people in in prison for essentially non violent crimes, we need to sort of revisit what the basis of the law is. And um, you know, it's certainly not the actual harm that's being done by the drug itself. In fact, the the, the the war for control of the drugs because it's illegal and because it's so profitable has become so violent and so profitable. Um, it's just the tentacles are stretching all over the world into the banking system through money laundering, uh, into politics. It's ruined you know, countless Latin American nations. It goes all the way up to the presidency in several of these Latin American nations. And, and there's a, increasingly, it's intersecting with tech as well. I mean, there's a cryptocurrency dimension to all of this as well. Because, mm. you know, a lot of these guys were on the dark web. And I know I, I heard stories of even dealers in the UK would, would, you know, would sell and then go straight to these Bitcoin ATMs. You know, they've made a fortune now because of the, the run in uh, in cryptocurrency. Yeah, I mean, they've, they have to. One of the big problems for drug traffickers, I asked this question of um, uh, the guy, the Bolivia's biggest drug trafficker. I said, "Four point two tons. In how, how do you how do you get four point two tons of cocaine in one one place to, and then ship it and and distribute it? That's that's a huge enterprise." And he said, "That's not the difficult part. The difficult part is actually bringing the money back to you. Because do you know how much?" space how much volume for that money takes up it's a lot take the the cash they get from it actually takes um a lot takes a lot more than the product takes up a lot more space um than right. the product particularly if it hasn't been put back into hundred dollar bills if it's sold you know sold in the street for ten dollars um they've got these sort of small old wrinkled bills and it takes up it takes up you know plane loads 
and then to get it back in and to wash the money is a huge logistical problem. And uh, Escobar used to actually, got, they got tired of counting, so they used to just, just weigh it. <laughs> um, and, you know, they ha- the lawmakers are always like one step or two steps behind the, the cartels. They're always coming out with more and more innovative ways of... Um, there's, a few, there's a few South American countries that are actually talking about introducing digital currencies. Right. I think Venezuela is one. I mean, that, and that's equi- I think Ecuador as well. But, but it's mm. really about eliminating the black market. Yeah, although that could easily facilitate it. And I'll say in the case of Venezuela, there's pretty strong evidence that high members, high level members of the military and potentially the government have been involved in in cocaine trafficking. And the the US State Department has come out and said that openly that, you know, the the government and the army in Venezuela are running drugs. So if they did introduce things like cryptocurrencies, that would be another way of, you know, avoiding detection. Unfortunately, I mean, when you go into the airport in Colombia, in Bogota, You've got dog, dog sniffer dogs on the way in. You're sort of thinking, why would they have dogs at, on the way into Colombia? It's to sniff currency because people have to. Right. They actually have um, cash mules who actually swallow condoms full of cash to bring it back in for the smaller, the smaller trade. So it is, yeah. It's just it's it's brings out the best and the worst in people. There brings out their innovation, their resourcefulness, their imagination, um, but also you know the, the violence, the violence and the, and the greed. It's terrific. You spent some time in Colombia working for the um, U.S. government the, mm. in the kidnap kidnapping program. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I understand, that that sort of led you to some of the experiences you had, which was behind the new book you're bringing out. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was I wrote Marching Powder about Bolivia. That's about a Bolivian prison that I moved. Um, we sort of at the end. I won't spoiler alert. You know, the end of the uh, book, we get out of prison and we're looking for somewhere to live. So I moved to Colombia with Thomas, and I needed to I needed to basically survive while I was writing a book. I became an English teacher. I loved that, and then I ended up meeting a guy on a plane who looked very suspicious. Ended up being a lovely guy as well, and changed my life. This sort of chance encounter on the plane turned out he did work for the U.S. government. And he offered me a job, and was he a spook? Uh, no, he was a contractor. I mean, I think a lot of these, uh, look, a lot of these. Um, these wars are outsourced now. They call them PMCs, private military contractors. So the government itself, particularly in either hostile areas or areas where they're not supposed to be, or they haven't got an inter-country agreement in place, they'll outsource it. And that's sort of in the case of actual, you know, bullets flying in wars like in Iraq and Afghanistan allows them to say, we've only lost this many troops because right. when people get killed, they're not on their, they're not government soldiers. So... Um, he was not a spook. He was just a contractor. But there's, you know, the, again, there's there's billions of dollars in, in government contracts to, um, you know, to to fund these to run these programs. Uh, I was very, you know, I was initially skeptical. I'm, you know, skeptical in, of many of the U.S. government's foreign policy ulterior motives. Um, but this was a really, really, really good program. Basically, um, stopping extortion and stopping kidnapping before it happening happens. And if someone was taken from the streets, then to send out this, the SWAT team to, to bring them back. You know, for decades, basically, kidnapping was, was the norm. Between nine, on average, nine to ten people were taken per day Gosh. from the streets um, or and basically at, at illegal checkpoints in the countryside. So they just put up a roadblock, chop a tree down across a, a highway and then stop a line of traffic and just take the richest looking person or with the best car or look at their surnames and their IDs. Often they had... Um, computed laptops with um, banking information <clears throat> so they knew who they're looking for so it actually became quite sophisticated and what started off essentially as a political war these were co- this was a communist insurgency ended up becoming quite capitalistic in nature and that was but because the funding became the primary 
the primary goal rather than their political end. So this went on for five decades. And fortunately for Colombia last year, uh, beginning of 2017, they signed a peace treaty. So officially the war is now over, but they've still got the residual problems of what are they going to do next and, and how are they going to get rid of drug trafficking. And, and, and tell me a bit about the new book. How, 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 how did those experiences, I guess, feed, feed the backdrop to that? Yeah, so when I was working for the US government, before that I absolutely committed myself in my mind that I wanted to keep writing. I loved writing Marching Powder and I, just, I, was, I knew I wanted to write about Colombia. I didn't quite know what, so I was just trying to get behind the war and get as close to the war as possible without getting killed. So I'd go out, <laughs> I'd go out into sort of the, the war zones. It's primarily a rural war. Um, and it's, a, so it's what's, what's known as a low-intensity war, so you don't have these sort of pitch battles. It's more like selective assassinations or, you know, ambushes, and then they flare up and then Charming. die down. <laughs> yeah. So go out and try and find, just try and go into the field and try and find out what's going on, you know, and ask questions. And obviously, once I uh, started working um, with the U.S. government, I had a lot more contacts, and I was exposed to. I'd never fight a gun before, you know. And so suddenly, I'm. Living, uh, living on a military base, um, driving a bulletproof car um, around weapons and grenades and explosives and debt cord and breaching and you know all this, all sorts of military and had people fascinating people who had fascinating lives who you know had real military experience. And then I came into contact with child soldiers. So that's what really what the focus of Colombiano is about is child soldiers. Now, when my when I think of child soldiers before going to Colombia, when I thought of child soldiers, I'd think Africa. Yeah, um, because that's what we've seen in Blood Diamond and then in the news. Lord of War. But yeah, uh, Colombia actually had the second highest number of child soldiers in the world. Um, so between eleven and fourteen thousand children were involved in the conflict at the at the peak of the war. Was the the recruitment and management of them very similar to the African? No, quite different. Um, very little, very little forced recruitment. And when I say forced, obviously to bear in mind there's a kid. So can they give their consent to join a war? No, it's illegal. Right. Pers- just Full stop. It's but illegal. they weren't but getting them to execute kid- their parents. They weren't kidnapping them or you know <clears throat> plucking them from villages. Colombia is a you know a, a wealthy country, but in the in the rural um, isolated areas, uh, a lot of poverty and lots of big families. You know, kids often uh, father might die or go be away working, and neglected kids from uh, who have suffered physical abuse, emotional abuse, sometimes sexual abuse, financial hardship, hungry, and then along comes. A terrorist organization in uniforms holding weapons saying we will give you food and protection and that seems like a it seems like a step up in life and so for many of them actually they didn't actually really regret joining up because they did they get fed they got looked after to a certain extent but they also went through incredible um, horrific experiences such as uh, witnessing you know, t- torture death um, mm. having to commit murder themselves or torture people themselves and often practicing it upon other kids their own age the youngest kid I met had joined up when he was eight years old. Most of them were about sort of 12, 13, 14, just big enough to carry a, a rifle and a backpack, and a third of them were girls. So really, really tragic circumstances and something I wanted to bring the world's attention to, but it was really difficult to try and... I just had so many different stories from different regions that didn't really overlap, so I ended up writing it um, as fiction. Huh. So officially it's fiction, but I think people readers will detect that the, the amount of research it's pretty realistic basically it's, and it's based on historical events in Colombia so you've, you've you've really seen the the horrors of of what the war of drugs the distortions it creates in people's lives and mm. societies in, in um, countries now that you there's sort of this new swing towards selective legalization and of course America is the great experiment now with marijuana mm. um, 
we're going to see the other side of that, which is rampant commercialization. <laughs> yeah, you well, know, even some of the original, you know, backers of Starbucks are now backing. The, well, and the pharmaceutical companies will, will be right in there. Anyone, anyone, yeah. you know, those big, big tobacco um, will be in there for sure. Um, I mean, that I have, as I said before, I'm in favour of taxing and regulating it, but I think it has to be really strongly regulated and thought about in advance. There are some massive pitfalls, and I'm not, I'm not saying that legalisation is going to solve the problem. Massive problem, massive, what if governments become dependent on the tax? What if corporates become involved in making a profit and actually have an interest in promoting and advertising it? Well, this is the thing. What so if it's, citizens... It's a spectrum, isn't it? Like, yeah, well, it's just a, le- it's, a le- it's a lesser of two evils dilemma. Um, what happens if people who do trust their government and so the government says, oh, you know, it's now legal, that essentially is giving tacit approval saying, well, it's not that bad, but it actually is bad. But I still think that there, there are ways to control this in the same way we've, as we're beginning to control cigarette um, use. You know, there's no advertising. You can't you go into a store, you can't see it. It's behind a cupboard. There were restricted hours on when you can buy it. And same as alcohol. And so I say, I say tax it, restrict it, and gradually phase it out as, yeah. we're, doing with, as we're doing with cigarettes. And, and also use the taxation revenue to, to fund advertising to decool the drugs. Because right now they're seen as glamorous partly because they're illegal, partly because we see it uh, as a display of wealth and, and social status. We see it in the movies, and we go, yeah, that's a really cool drug. But Colombians, for example, uh, I never met Colombians who took drugs. They, they were dead against it. It ruined their countries. And I think, yeah. I think you know, they look at cocaine. And it's also, it's also very cheap there, so it's yeah, not glamorous. So, I mean, yeah, it's, so it's not a cool thing. It's actually cheaper to buy a gram of coke than a I mean, It's like a, sniffing glue. It's like sniffing glue yeah, or Yeah, well, that, right? they, they see it almost as in the same way as we would see heroin or ice. It's a kind of dirty drug. Um, they don't see it as being glamorous, whereas you come to Sydney and it's just like, hey, it's kind of like seen as a kind of harmless fun on a Friday night, and it's not. It's a you know, it's a damaging drug, and it's done incredible levels of de- of you know harm around the world. Hmm. Well, listen, Rusty, it's been wonderful seeing you again. Um, <laughs> There's so much we could talk about, Mike. There is, and, and and I think if I recorded any of it, I would get stopped in several countries. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably already gonna watch this. Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely another story. But listen, uh, it was good to see you, and I think we should uh, you know not wait another twenty years. Yeah, well, I'll. I'll I'll get back in contact and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll shoot the breeze again. Cheers. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds. <laughs>